0: Hey, everyone. Nate Mancini here. We had some technical issues with the virtual recording of this episode, so you'll hear that some words clip off at the end. Sometimes, this might make it harder to fully appreciate the responses and beautiful poems in the episode. I hope this conversation is still a blessing to you, and I would encourage you to purchase one of Laura Reese Hogan's books of poetry so that you can experience it for yourself. It is truly worthwhile to do so. Thanks for understanding, and here is the episode. What is up? Welcome to Forefront 360, a podcast where we take you all around the intersection of the arts and the Christian faith. Uh, my name is Cody Schweikert, and I am co-hosting here today. Is that fair to say, co-hosting, Rich? Are we, I mean, I yeah, think you, you've you've already done most of the work for this bad boy, but uh, so you can be sure it's a quality episode, audience. Uh, Rich Christman is behind the scenes here. And uh, how you doing? You still at school everyone. there, buddy? I can see you.
1: Oh yeah, in in the the English classroom where we study beautiful poetry every day uh, with high school students and we'll we'll bring you guys all in there today to study the poetry of Laura Reese Hogan. What a
0: segue Mm -hmm. this guy, professional radio (laughs) dude over here. Um, That is right, Mm -hmm, we mm -hmm. have uh, the privilege of having Laura Reese Hogan on the podcast today, Uh, just released a new book. Rich, I'm going to let you introduce Laura. Absolutely. Well, first of all, Laura, welcome. Thank you for being on.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
0: It's
1: truly an honor. Um, Laura, actually, and, and I and also Nate, our, our founder of Forefront here, got a chance to meet briefly at the Catholic Imagination Conference this past uh, September. So that was really cool. And since then, uh, I and Cody spent some some time really diving into her work, and we're really excited to talk to her today. Uh, so those of you that may not know uh, Laura yet, Laura Reese Hogan is the author of the poetry books Litany of Flights, O Garden Dweller, and the spiritual theology book, I Live No Longer I, Paul's Spirituality of Suffering, Transformation, and Joy, which examines the spirituality of Paul the Apostle. She's one of 10 poets featured in the anthology In a Strange Land. Laura also has a forthcoming book in 2023 that we'll discuss and hear a bit from later in this episode uh, called Butterfly Nebula that we're really excited about and we want to talk a little bit about too. Um, Laura earned a BA from Rice University in Houston, Texas, a JD from the University of California, Los Angeles School of Law, and an MA in Theology from St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, California, and she lives in Southern California. Uh, We are honored to have someone on the show who is so learned as you in so many intersecting and diverse areas, poetry and literature, obviously, law, and also theology. So our first question for you today, Laura, is, do you find these areas of your expertise informing and empowering each other often
2: wow uh yes those are all parts of me so uh definitely the theology and poetry intersect often uh image and metaphors seem to make their way into my theological writing uh, kind of as a way of illustrating concepts and scripture and spiritual theology theory my poems often um and as far as the law the law aspect probably shows up in my desire to create kind of an internal logic or persuasion in my writing in the poem, but also the nonfiction, to give the reader a sense of satisfaction that way.
1: Wow, that's really cool.
0: <laughs> so cool.
1: Um, well, g- taking that into account as we move in, re- remember that, listeners, as we go into the, the deeper questions, because I feel like that's a uh, really great way to kind of set up Looking into you as, as a writer and an artist, Laura. So mm-hmm. we'll get to there in a second. But Cody's about to take us through the the legendary oh, Forefront 360 Lightning Round. So I'm gonna I'm gonna hand it back to him for that.
0: That's right. Uh, I'm a little disappointed that Rich already asked a, a deep, profound <laughs> uh, question about art and theology Bef- before we could do the Lightning Round. I mean, this is just a uh, Forefront Law um, that mm-hmm. we uh, every new guest has to endure this Lightning Round of questions, which. Uh, I'll be totally frank. Probably have very little to do with uh, why we're here today. Uh, Little to do with poetry most of the time, but it's just a fun way to get to know you. And uh, it's actually one of my favorite parts of the show. So I take this very seriously writing these questions. Okay. Um, And uh, it's just got to be the first thing that comes to mind, Laura, okay?
2: All right. Let's run the gauntlet.
0: Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. First question coffee or tea?
2: I love both, but I would definitely go with coffee and my favorite is phil's which is a california coffee
0: oh nice that's right uh good choice good choice uh the favorite place you've ever been what's your favorite place on earth
2: oh wow on earth i'd have to go with the sea of galilee uh which is such a powerful experience for me uh, maybe because i associate it with these really important teachings about having faith Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Hard to beat that answer. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have not been yet, but I'm like, if I go, I'm, I'm definitely gonna be that guy that tries to walk just right out there. Um, <laughs> not, not so confident it'll work. It'll work out, but you know, worth a shot. Okay. Mountains. Are, was Peter. Yeah. Right. Who knows, man. Um, mountains or beach, mountains or beach.
2: Oh, okay. So I love the mountains. I love hiking in the mountains, the Aspens, the little hidden lakes in the Rockies, but I'm going with beaches because I live in Southern California and I love just uh, kind of gazing at the sea and looking for dolphins and whales. And for me, uh, mountains and the sea are places of encountering God. And I think that shows up in my work, especially actually this forthcoming work, Butterfly Nebula.
0: Wow. Mm. Good answer i knew you'd find a fancy way to say both you just you just like both um okay next question next question you can share a meal with one author from history who do you pick but it can't be anyone from the bible so any author from history
2: oh okay all right can't be biblical so i'd have to go with teresa babla uh i have questions <laughs> Especially about her interior castle. So Mm. I I would choose her. Uh
1: That's a that's a great choice. And and you skirted the you know, she's not biblical, but definitely we you could talk about the Bible and what the Bible has
0: to say. So it's very good. We can. Oh yeah. Laura Definitely Laura Reese Hogan is totally destroying me on these lightning round questions. I'm trying to corner her and get to know her. (laughs) (laughs) um, Hard to pin down. I know. Okay. This one. This is just subjective, right here. You have to pick PB and J cut into squares or triangles.
2: <laughs> All right, you really are trying to corner me.
0: <laughs> oh, All right, wow. it,
2: it, it has it has to be triangles. You got to jazz things up.
0: Mm. Yes, yeah, man. My mom used to make PB Js for me triangles, and uh, yeah, squares are just they, they're different. Um, we probably don't need to spend any more time talking about that, though. Let's move on. Okay, your favorite Pauline epistle. <laughs>
2: That one's easy for me. I would go with Philippians uh, because it's the letter of joy and uh, it has the security and depth mm-hmm. of all of Paul's letters and has the best clues to his spiritual theology. That's my favorite. Oh, hmm.
0: better than Romans.
2: For me. For me.
0: Respect. Okay. Respect. Love it. Good book. Um, okay, next question. Would you rather wear wet socks every day for a year? or spend a full fortnight in L.A. traffic?
2: (laughs) All right, both of these obviously extreme torture. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But I take the L.A. traffic, because by now I'm kind of dead to it, and I would just try to view it as an opportunity to binge on my music for two weeks.
0: Beautiful. Mm -hmm. And you define fortnight with your answer too, good. Some of our listeners, I know some of you didn't know what a (laughs) Fortnite was. You're welcome.
1: It's more than a video game. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Uh, Okay. Last question: What's the best thing you've ever written?
2: I have to say, Butterfly Nebula. Uh, Maybe it's because I'm really excited about it right now, but I, I think that's it.
1: Wow. I'm glad to hear it, though. I mean, I always wonder, you know, as as a creative, like we always wonder if the new work that we're doing is going to stack up to, you know, previous successes that we've had. And I'm I'm glad to hear that you're excited about the craft is continuing to ascend. I'm excited about that.
2: Yeah.
0: It's cool. Thank
2: you. Yeah.
0: Congrats. You survived Laura. (laughs) Um, We can get into, we can get into uh, the rest of the discussion here. Okay. I actually, I think the best way to kick this off, Laura, you've been gracious to offer to read some of your poems for us. Um, one of one of my favorite poems. Um, I I think I resonated with a lot of the poems that. Well, it's such a. It's. I will say this. It is, uh, the book of poetry I've read that most feels like a book that is uh, united. Like there is a uni- There is a clear thread that kind of like connects all of these pieces together in a way that I mm-hmm. think um, some books. Have, it's just hard to do that. Uh, to mm-hmm. sometimes we just write poems and they amass over the years and we kind of find a a general connection among them and that's great too but uh i love so many of these and uh the one that i would love to hear you read just to kick us off and get a sense of your style and content uh is um what is the name here yes rain comes in the fourth year that's the one i love rain comes in the fourth year um yeah
2: oh well thank you thank you cody and i'd love to read that Rain comes in the fourth Drought-flamed leaves wake in bewilderment under the unfamiliar caress of liquid mercy, a strange drenching of hope. Sugar maple fingers drip myrrh, precious dew. Persimmons gather courage, gasping trees and wasting cottontails revive. Roots remember Elijah casting prayer over the sea long ago. Changed hearts water the dust of Carmel. Every living thing drinks. Colors deepen, darken with wet blessing. The collective breath draws damp, sighs relief. At last you have turned your face to us, wreathed in cloud gentle rain, quiet, is a prayer of our very selves. And the towhees and larks, darting acrobats and air-washed clean of the dry multitude of regrets, pierce the sky with reaching cascades of joy.
0: Come on, so beautiful. Thank you. The the allusion to uh, Elijah, the way that you constantly... Marry the uh, the abstract with the concrete seamlessly. It's uh, mm-hmm. the same way that these poems fit together seamlessly in this book is just uh, so beautiful and difficult to do. Um, and there were I don't know if there were any in this particular poem, but I was reading some of these poems and I'm like I've never seen this word in my life, you know. And I'm you know mm-hmm. I'm an English I'm an English teacher and I'm supposed to have a, a pretty good vocabulary i think i've got to do a little better because i'm learning these words that i've never even seen before you know whether it's types of birds or plants or beyond that it's just uh, just really rich text here and that's just a little mm-hmm. glimpse so i uh, appreciate you sharing that one to kick us off
1: yeah i i really enjoy it too like your your poetry strikes me as very psalm-like mm-hmm. uh a lot of times like the, the almost um I, I suppose the the voice that you're using being very um, personal, but also grand, mm-hmm. if that makes sense, and that, and that really uh, that that really draws me in. But we we actually have a unique situation here as we move into the main body of our interview and forefront three sixty, excuse me, listeners. Uh, you'll notice this is a change uh, in in recent interviews since our friend Nate interviewed Jessica Hooten Wilson at Imagination Redeemed last year. Um, We have asked some friends and contemporaries of those that that are being interviewed if they have any questions they would like to ask our guests. And, Laura, I'm happy to report that you are by far the most popular guest (laughs) we've had ever in terms of audience input. Uh, So people were really excited to hear that we were interviewing you and really wanted to hear from you. So as a result of that, this interview uh, going forward is going to be driven mostly by your friends and our fans who had questions for you.
2: Well, wow. <laughs> Thank you.
1: Cody, why don't you start us off with uh, Michael Gorman's questions and, and then we'll go on.
0: Yeah, sure. So Michael Gorman is a chair of Biblical and Theological Studies at St. Mary's Seminary and University. Uh, first question Michael asks is this. What is your process for writing poetry? What gets you started? and how and when and where do you write?
2: Wow. Well, thank you so much to Mike for this question. For me, a poem always starts with some kind of spark, uh, whether it happens organically, you know, during the normal course of the day, or whether I'm working with a prompt or an ID to try to make a poem. I would say the best poems uh, come out of having an image or an idea or experience kind of all come together. Uh, for example, When I was writing my forthcoming collection, Butterfly Nebula, I often would start with an image out of nature or the cosmos, maybe something big like, say, a nebula or eclipse, or something small like a praying mantis or daffodil. And I try to uncover something about the human condition or our relationship with God of hidden in That often would then start intersecting with something happening in my own life or spiritual life. Um, So I usually write new poems in the morning because uh, fresh ideas and images come together best for me in the morning. I revise poems or I write nonfiction any time of the day. Um, And where, right? That was another part of the question. So typically I write uh, typically, I write in my home office, actually where I am right now, which is a mm-hmm. peaceful space for me. And the writing is always, I would say, kind of bracketed by or even done in the middle of prayer.
0: Mm. That that comes through when reading your poems for sure. Um, Thank you. Is it, are we talking like pen and paper, starting with pen and paper or yeah. right to the computer?
2: Yeah, so usually what I do is i typically write a first draft on a pad of paper uh and just kind of let the spirit move me in a free write uh just to get everything out at least started on the page uh and then when i moved with the poem in a word document i almost start over again i almost started writing the, the poem again but i use what i've written on the paper as like a well kind of to draw words and phrases from um wow. and then kind of by then i usually have wow. a sense of what the poem is trying to do and i just shape it at that point every poem is a different experience has a different timeline of completion uh, but i usually like set aside for a few days after that and come back to it later with fresh eyes
0: do do you ever tell yourself like here i go i'm going off the track now i gotta be careful uh do you ever say to yourself (laughs) (laughs) you ever say to yourself like i could maybe i could make this poem better but I've been revising it. I've taken several passes at it. This much time has passed. I need to like lay this down and release it into the world. Or how, how does, tell me about your thought process mm. in that.
2: Well, uh, you know, every poem is different. Uh, and sometimes I write a poem and I know it's pretty close. Um, but other times, literally, I, I will go back for an entire year off the line or even more to a poem because it, I know yeah. I haven't quite brought it to completion. I haven't Quite fulfilled, what I what I think the poem is telling me it wants to be. So it's really kind of a very organic process of of me trying to kind of figure out what the poem is trying to grow into and helping it along as best I can using you know lots of different areas mm-hmm. of the craft.
0: So good, That's cool, beautiful. Um, quick quick follow up um, from Mike. He also asks uh, in what way writing poetry is a spiritual experience or discipline for you? I know you mentioned praying and covering Mm -hmm. that that process in prayer. Could you say a little bit more about that?
2: Sure. Um, So it's always my intention uh, that my work come out of my relationship with God. So writing is almost always a spiritual experience for me, whether or not the poem contains any religious or spiritual themes overtly um i suppose mm-hmm.
1: so glad you said that
2: it's true uh and i suppose That's... i'm always like listening around my writing uh to uh, to be sensitive to to how i should you know carry the poem forward um and i i'd say he asked spiritual experience or discipline it's a discipline in the sense that it's a regular and committed sort of my relationship with God, which takes time and energy, but definitely not in terms of joy. Uh, It's a very fulfilling thing.
1: Paul Pastor, uh, a fellow poet uh, and another attendee at the Catholic Imagination Conference. Paul had many questions to ask you, Laura, (laughs) but we distilled uh, a couple down. I'm sure you and Paul will someday have the opportunity to talk and you can answer more of his questions. But uh, (laughs) I want to ask you this one from Paul Pastor. Your work deals a lot uh, with the interplay of nature and what he might call the informal liturgies of life. In what ways do you see nature as a liturgical space? What are you learning about entering such a space attentively?
2: I really appreciate this question from Paul. Yes, I do see nature as a liturgical space. In a way, all of creation witnesses to the divine, uh, charged with the grandeur of God. Uh, It gives testimony and praise to God. I mean, we see it in the Psalms too. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. To me, nature is like fundamentally sacramental. We can touch, see, smell, and taste it. It's a visible, tangible kind of symbol of the reality of God. So our attentiveness to nature, even to the very smallest elements of it, can serve as a gateway to some experience of God. Um, So what I've learned about entering such a space attentively, uh, one thing I've learned is the importance of noticing even things which seem completely ordinary or very unremarkable or even unlovely, uh, sometimes, I find the best lessons are hidden in just such things. Um, for example, I've written poems about uh, very small, unremarkable brown butterflies, about the extremely unappealing corpse flower, <laughs> about overripe persimmons, mm-hmm. dying apricot trees, and a tree at a gas station. <laughs> I feel like this noticing is really a key element of spiritual life. What is it that we are not noticing? That's such an important question to ask, I think. Yeah. So often, I think we miss, we just completely miss elements of grace right in front of us. And that's actually a theme which comes up often in Litany of Lights.
1: Mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah. I, another question from Paul, I think that applies here. Um, he says, It has been observed before that it is much easier to write poems about grief than about happiness and about sorrow than about joy. So connecting to kind of what you're talking about, how, that you write about things that seem unremarkable and, and not, you know, something that you commonly write about, mm-hmm. uh, applying that too to the idea that we write more frequently maybe about um, sorrow than joy. What are you learning about integrating joy and related themes to that into your work?
2: Right. So for me, joy is not so much related to the idea of happiness, uh, which to me is tied to specific events or situations or people. For me, the concept of joy is related to God and relationship with God. Uh, I find that idea in Paul. Though, so in fact, the whole last chapter of my book, I Live Not Your Eyes, is about Paul's concept of joy. Uh, it's just that grounding of joy in, mm-hmm. in our relationship with God. And I also find it in mystics. Um, so for me, joy comes out of relationship with God. So when I write about joy, either expressly about joy or not, I'm drawing on that relationship uh, with God uh, that we can count on even when things seem bleak, a relationship which may surprise us and gives rise to transcendent moments. Uh, So for example, in Litany of Flights, poem about joy centers Mm. on a tree, uh, which (laughs) another tree, which seems to be failing to bloom. Um, that poem really is about patient waiting, we do in, in the faith life, mm-hmm. uh, how joy in the Lord is the strength that carries us, uh, even if we bloom in late November, <laughs> like this tree. Um, but the question about what I'm learning about mm-hmm. integrating joy into my work uh, the primary lesson for me is that a poet communicates transcendence most effectively if the poem itself can create the experience of discovery or fulfillment or the transcendent moment in the reader. Uh, That can be really, really tricky to do, but definitely worth the effort. Uh, I like looking at ordinary things, ordinary parts of life uh, to find Mm -hmm. little transcendent moments. Uh, Another example is uh, from Litany of Flights would be unexpected wings, which doesn't mention joy at all, but creates this little scene involving the reader in a situation, uh, which ends in a simple, barely noticeable, but hopefully transcendent moment.
1: I wonder, would you mind, would you be willing to read Unexpected Wings for
2: us? Yes, I'd love to. Unexpected Wings. 91 degrees, even as the sun flickers low, my son stands tall epicenter of buzzing children, unruly excited bees to his sweet nectar, soccer. They have little, but every week grow rich in runs, breathless goals, high fives, and hem. Even before he gets out of the car, they call his name. They flock eagerly around him, try their feet at it, kick, try again. A boy falls in face-down sprawl, cross in the grass. My son kneels at his side. He will not stand. My son speaks soft words I cannot hear. And I see his hand patting the shaking back. Someone near me says, autistic. The child is autistic. And if tears can be shut up neat and put away there. The boy sits up suddenly, sobs, I fail, I fail, I fail, I cannot think who of us does not. My son coaxes the boy onto trembling feet, and here is the thing. My son keeps a hand on the boy's shoulder, his infinite moments tick by, and wherever he walks on the field, the boy stays right next to him, under his arm. The ball bumps the kids, Zig and Zag, The Sunset, A Gold Work of Unexpected Wings.
1: Well, I feel like we just have to sit with that for a second. <laughs> mm-hmm. Thank you for reading that for us.
2: Oh, you're yeah. so welcome.
0: Yeah, as you can hear, listeners, uh Laura has this, this eye for the transcendent, like almost like she can't escape it. I imagine what it would be like, uh, to be in your mind and to just go about the day like to walk out you know down the driveway and get the mail or something and <laughs> it just uh it just seems like effortless the way that you you see something in this this idea of god's general revelation and you can connect it so beautifully to the special revelation you know the specific mm-hmm. truths of god and um it's just that the way the way you and then metaphor.
1: translate it and then translate it for us in a way that we can get like a little glimpse of what you're experiencing there. So thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah,
0: That is exactly right, Rich. That's what I'm like, what I've never heard before is what you said a few moments ago, Laura, about, you know, like I can see these metaphors and nature and they remind me about who God is in my relationship with him, but to be able to write a poem and not just, uh, communicate that information to a reader but to take a reader by the hand and say discover this with me i'm this is going to be a personal experience for you to discover this because i'm going to use the perfect word to help you feel like you were there with me when i had this experience just that's that's next level um it's it's the kind of poems that i read and i'm like well maybe i should do something else uh, i can't i can't create, i don't know i'm not i can not i do not i am not i am not uh yeah. No. Um, Thank awesome. You so much. Let's. Uh, are we good to keep rolling, Rich? Yeah. Let's do it. David Keplinger, uh, he asks this. <clears throat> He's a poet, by the way. David, shout out. Uh, poetry's emphasis on images sometimes grounds the reader's attention in the world of the senses, but God is invisible and appearances are deceiving. How is your sense of beauty pushed against poetry's conventions? all that we associate with the corruptible world of things as a way of addressing the eternal and uncreated. That's a poet's question right there. That's a, that's a poet's question. Yeah.
2: That's a poet's question. But thanks so much to David for this great question. I appreciate it. Um, I, I mentioned before that I try to notice the ordinary or even unlovely things because I find so much beneath the surfaces. Um, That is certainly one way I try to get at the mystery of the eternal, uh, which I think is what David's pointing to in this question. Uh, To me, this world points to the next. And the signposts are very often in unlikely places. Mm. They can be hidden or even disguised. Um, So we know from scripture, God judges us not by appearances, but by the heart. So shouldn't we do the same? So,
1: hmm.
2: why shouldn't the unlikely or unlovely everywhere around us have something important to say?
0: Wow. Whoa. Uh, for
2: me, the divine mystery. Oh,
0: my gosh. That's like a metaphor about metaphors.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So... I mean, uh, God is mystery. And, and part of that mystery is paradox. Uh, the divine mystery is often hidden in very humble circumstances. I mean, we see that over and over again in scripture in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, and speaking of paradox, I, I like playing with that idea, too, uh, that the small, unlikely messenger of the divine uh, can simultaneously be both frail and eternal in reach. Hmm. For example, an example from Litany of Flights of a poem that does that is a uh, Substance Theory, uh, in which an override, kind of like beat up, bird pecked hachia persimmon is an instrument of grace.
0: Yeah. Would you read that one for us? Yeah. Let's hear. Let like, can we hear? Can we hear that one too?
2: Yeah. I'd love to read that one. Thank you.
1: You guys are getting a special treat here. This is an interview and a poetry reading in one. So <laughs> no.
0: we spoil these people, don't we?
2: Yeah. So I. would just say uh, the only things you need to know before I read this. Uh, so a hachia is a kind of persimmon. So it's a, a kind of persimmon that has to be really, really almost mushy and soft before it's actually ripe, um, and. The three Teresas mentioned in this poem are Teresa of Avila, Therese of Lisieux, and, Ter- and Mother Teresa. This is substance theory. The skin of the persimmon is not what it used to be. Who is to say that it is a less lovely sphere, dulled to ripe auburn pulp, and although pecked, sun-patched? The tree- takes them tenderly into being each season, each in turn turns to teach the turn to the one sweet heat. The hachia meets its appointments, matures beyond the astringent orange sheen, reaching for Teresa, reaching for Therese, reaching for Teresa, reaching for the utter center of the divine diamond fruit, An arrow into flame, and flame leaps and ignites the next. Incandescent in the setting gold embrace, she gathers her ruddy round, flares her warm fragrance on high. I have kept both fresh and mellowed in store for you, my love. I can say I love ardently. I will say we cradle stars. I can say I hold the key I will say we usher others through root wither wind bite and branch bend lead us here a final kiss for the crumbling leaf crown a release of the soft body in the time their visitation they will shine and dart about as sparks through stubble perhaps you will just make out the glimmer of each autumnal halo in the dusk, and it will light something inside, in the juiced middle, near the seed heart. Who is to say the puckered, rusted, red flesh is less lovely when it may be taken, consumed, and dissolved into molecules, into acid nebula, into fusion, into fire
0: huh. it's like uh, therapy hearing that uh, <laughs> Laura that's actually that's actually the last uh, poem in this book litany of flights can you tell us quickly uh, how you decided that should be the the finish
2: sure uh, so uh, for me this poem put together uh, a lot of the themes that are contained in Litany of Flights. And one of us themes is fire, uh, kinds of fire. Uh, just kind of threads throughout Litany of Flights. So I I love ending on the word fire. Uh, fire in a really transcendent sense. Fire of kind of union with God. Like, you know, what that means on a lot of different levels. Of course this poem is is speaking to transformation, but it's also speaking to death. It's also speaking to, you know, how we as creatures, just parts of creation, you know, pass, pass, this on to one another, this, this faith. Um, so, uh, you know, also that idea of what we've noticed, what we haven't noticed. I mean, I loved ending on this kind of not very noticeable per seven, um, in the dots, it. um, mm-hmm. and, and just kind of as a way of reminding us how we can choose to have a different perspective about everything.
0: Mm.
1: That's awesome. I wonder too, on that theme of fire that you referenced, I wonder if you would also read California match girl for us before we proceed.
2: Sure. Yes. So, and and this, I am glad, uh, Actually, this is perfect because this is a a very natural form of fire that shows up in the book. There's kind of spiritual uh, pointing to fire and what that means in the spiritual life as in maybe uh, dryness preparing us for an entry of of divine fire in our spiritual life. But this is an actual Mm -hmm. wildfire. So here we go. California Match Girl. It's combustible here, where humidity thins and the wind howls. Parched the gusting pepper trees, auspicious kindling the peopled homes, too ready to bloom in flame. We brush cut, we arson watch, we red flag, but really we just hope the witch does not shove us into the seething oven and slam the door hard. We don't expect it until the billow of acrid smoke already chokes our lungs. We simmer just outside the smoldering edges of our volatile vulnerability. Oh, so fireproof. Striking matches see the starry vision, biting into the shiny red apple, pricking innocent fingers on the spindle, falling down the hill, off the wall into the well down the beanstalk beating the giant against all odds by sheer grace a woman told me that after the fire her house stood alone in the stark landscape charred inside near the fireplace sucked down the chimney in the midst of the firestorm left among the cinders she found a half-burned page from a child's book, not belonging to her. She cannot make out which story, but we all know it.
1: Okay, I love that poem. That was one of my favorites in the book. <laughs> the The amount of like allusion and symbolism, and I love that it just ends f- rather matter-of-factly. Um, but we all know it. I just really, really like that one. And I'm not alone because um, Sophia Starnes, poet laureate emerita of Virginia, um, sent in that that was her favorite poem as well. And she mm-hmm. asks you uh, Does the open endedness of the closing verse of California Match Girl invite each reader to project their own story? Or is it all stories telling the same tale?
2: Wow. Well, first of all, thanks so much to Sophia for that wonderful question. I actually think it does both things. Um, This poem is speaking to the human condition uh, that we all experience, all the ways we experience loss and suffering. So it comes out of a terrible fire a few years ago here in Southern California that destroyed hundreds of homes and killed people. But this uh, particular story can also serve as a frame for other stories. We naturally project our own stories on what we read, uh, but there's comfort to be found in that, I think. Um, Maybe our pain is a universal experience. We all struggle. But maybe we also overcome it. I I believe there's a kind of a sneaking hope in all of us, maybe you'd even call it faith that the story may not end badly after all <laughs> uh, or the story may not end in the way that we think or that maybe what seems to be the end is not really end. Uh, i think fairy tales teach us uh to beware the dangers right. of the world to be wise but also to be hopeful that good will triumph that somehow the child will with the witch the giant will fall the prince will come
1: wow that's beautiful, and I think that the amount of—I mean—you already talked about mystery and paradox and all those things, which are such, um, like, so um, energizing to your to your poetry. But I think the, uh, like, the paradoxical nature of things like fire—you mm-hmm. know—it is both destructive and life-giving, and Seek then things find. like. Fairy tales as well, which are mm-hmm. frightening <laughs> but also hopeful. You know, like I, I just think that you're right that almost everything that God is and things that God have has created are paradoxical and mysterious. And it is so. Like as I'm listening to you now, I, I'm I'm recommitting myself to the belief that what we think we know about god and and reality and all these things are probably very much um just one side of a an infinitely sided shape you know mm. and that's a beautiful thing
2: I, I love that idea to me the idea of parents is so life-giving in in my faith life and it for me it comes out of uh the paradox of the cross you know that we see paul like it, it runs throughout his life yeah. so just the idea that there could be two simultaneous and kind of competing realities, vying for our attention, for me, is so useful because I can always stop and say, wait a minute, this is just one part of this story. <laughs> What's the other part of the story? Right.
0: Right. Yeah, I yeah. just, uh, you, you took the words out of my mouth because when we're starting to talk about paradox, I, I'll never forget uh, how uh, my old pastor, Rich's current pastor, Kevin Maloney, preached a sermon about the paradox of the cross and the irony of the cross and how paradox and irony can be closely linked, at least in my mind. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I think about the, the person who was mocking Jesus and said, you know, you're the son of God. Why don't you just get down and save yourself if you're the son of God? Mm -hmm. And, uh, that how the cross looked like defeat, even though we, we look back and we see that it's, it's actually victory and he is the son of God saving you because he's staying on the cross. And, Um, I just I I was as I was reading your book I did go to that over and over again because it's such such rich beauty and in irony as a you know literary element and uh, God being a creator of all that is just uh yeah so fulfilling and satisfying yeah um let's let's keep rolling here because we've got a question from Mm -hmm. Paul J. Willis he's the poet and professor of English at Westmont College uh, he, he wants to know what draws you, Laura, to the Song of Songs, and in what ways are some of your poems influenced by this book of the Old Testament?
2: Well, thanks very much, uh, Paul, for this question. I am very drawn to and influenced by the Song of Songs, uh, which is an extended love poem in the Old Testament spoken in alternating voices of the bride and the bridegroom. Traditionally, the bride and the bridegroom have been interpreted to represent kind of the church and Christ or the individual soul and God. So it's a favorite book of mystics who often use it to describe encounters with their beloved. Um, I especially love the song for the way it contains both the presence and the absence of the bridegroom and the way the bride interacts with that. Uh, So left without Mm. the bride, the bride is bereft. She can do nothing except seek him and long for him. And then when he returns, she can do nothing except be overwhelmed uh, by his presence and her love for him. So metaphorically, the song forms this uh, instructive pattern for the spiritual life. Uh, My poems are influenced in all sorts of ways by the song. uh, for example, I love to draw on different themes from um, kind of expressed in the song, uh, love and longing, divine absence and presence, just to name a couple. Uh, sometimes also I I draw directly on speech of the bride. Uh, for example, in that poem I read earlier, substance theory, um, the speaker voices the bride. It's like plugged right into the poem. I kept both fresh and mellowed in store for you, my love. Uh, that's an echo uh, from the actual text of song because I wanted you know uh, this this voice to include all the layers uh, of the love relationship and the longing um, that's present right into the song. Another example um, is my poem uh, mm. from Butterfly Nebula. You're never and always mm. ring of fire in which the bride actually becomes a character in the poem. Uh, which speaks to kind of that mysterious relationship between a finite human being and infinite God.
1: So, if Butterfly Nebula is your best work, would you be willing to pull back the veil a little <laughs> bit on that and read us that poem?
2: Oh, I would love yes, would love to read that.
1: <laughs> Great. I,
2: I will say there's one thing you need to know before I, I read that. Um, it's that if I, there's a ring of fire eclipse in which the moon eclipses the sun, uh, but the outer edge of the sun is still visible. So it has the appearance of a ring of fire.
1: Mm. Okay, sweet.
2: So this is your never and always ring of fire. Sometimes only a hand, your hand, comes between us and death. Moses who begged to see you shielded from your passing glory, you loved too much to say no. Can you feel our nearest passing by of you, the bride languishing for the light of you, for the sight of you, setting in her nothing? Sometimes you put the whole far moon between us just to return her love. Sometimes in a new moon, invisible, she feels the blister of your passion, a presence hidden in the gloss of absence. Sometimes at apogee, the farthest point, when earth and moon and sun you in lunar node, you shelter her crown the daytime night sky with a marriage of fire and knot. Never, and always, dark disk steadily bites into bright, eclipses the eyes. Except for the longing, there is no prayer for this. Sometimes only a hand, your hand, holds the moon just so, pours molten fire into perfect annulus. One minute, 20 seconds, your blazing ring of promise for your dearest love, dearest past shadow.
0: Oh, man. These deserve, each of these deserve uh, so much time and attention. And I'm sad that uh, we can't do a three-hour interview because (laughs) I, I just... I just want to add. It's just such a rare opportunity to speak with someone uh, so brilliant, and I, I just want to ask about each line and unpack it. And oh, thank well, you. Well, let's
1: do. It. Let's uh, you know maybe pencil in an episode specifically about Butterfly Nebula after that releases. That'd be great. We'll set it to oh, a nice,
2: ooh. a nice all three
1: right. to five hour discussion. <laughs> 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 no, but but you're on that uh, poem though. I just, I mean, all of them, but that one just stuck out to me too because I was. Um, not looking at the text, you know, I, I don't have a copy of that one. So just listening the uh your um like alliterations and, you know, just your I don't know if it, it just springs out of your brain or if you spend a lot of time um with your word choices. But it feels like every single word. And I know this is true of most poets, but it feels like every single word that you've chosen is you know, like um, very carefully and like, meticulously placed. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like your your poems remind me of a, um, I, I don't know, like some sort of, you know, jewel, <laughs> like a watch or something where like each piece yeah. is like perfectly uh, aligned so that the poem functions the yeah. way that it does, yeah. you know, and that just really <laughs> is beautiful.
0: Look at you with the metaphor, Richard. A little po- hey, poetic yourself back. there, buddy. <laughs> Right uh, off the
1: dome, there. No, yeah.
0: it's, it's a, it's a, it's a crime. I think it's a crime to read a, a poem like this uh, silently because, like you said, Rich, the uh, the alliteration and the assonance, it's uh, it's just music. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I love hearing them out loud. Uh, mm-hmm. I always tell my students, uh, you know, I have, you have to read poetry out loud. And I didn't read any of these poems out loud. I need to follow my own advice here. <laughs> um, okay, you. we have we have two questions left. Um, we're, we're doing good here. So, uh, the next one, the penultimate question, D.S. Martin, editor of the Poema Poetry Series, not sure I said that correctly, uh, but he asks, do you see a specific role for the arts in bridging the differences among God's people in political perspective, national borders, church traditions, practices, and minor variances in belief? Mm-hmm. So how, you know, what's the role of arts in, in bridging differences uh, within the, the division that you see in the world?
2: Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate uh, that great question from Juan. Yes, I think art has a way of transcending differences, of bringing us back to the key images and basic truths that we share. Uh, both poetry mm-hmm. and visual art rely on images and specifically images which carry layers of meaning Uh, Something both simple and nuanced about, for example, the image of an apple. Uh, What artists convey uh, often goes to the center of our beliefs, reminds us of the truth and the basics, the gospel, the foundation of our faith. Um, For me, it has a way of stripping away uh, things we humans kind of add on top that can complicate the picture. We do that in like a thousand ways. Mm -hmm. And it often divides us or carries us too far afield of the gospel itself. Uh, For me, art has a way of kind of dismantling Mm -hmm. all that bringing us back into contact with Mm. work.
1: That's a beautiful answer. I mean, a lot of... uh, I I personally have been a part of a lot of uh, ecumenical discussions recently and and just uh, um, I've been reading a lot about like how, you know, the the unity of the church can be restored for the glory of God. And and it feels like um, mm-hmm. returning to I'll call it like capital B beauty is, is where a lot of people seem mm-hmm. to be headed. And I think that that is a, uh, a very true and, and right way that we should be looking. And I, we at Forefront, I mean, one of our, our main purposes at Forefront is to um, connect, you know, connect artists and connect uh enjoyers of art with people that are, are working under that umbrella of what I'll call, again, capital B beauty. Like, you know, mm-hmm. what are these, these like you said, the, these universally shared understandings of beauty and that are universally shared because they are universally true. They're of mm-hmm. God, you know, mm-hmm. no matter what your, your church or cultural or, you know, even linguistic background or whatever. And I think that's... Mm-hmm. Thank you for being a... Uh, a fa- uh, a member of that uh you know team doing that work.
2: Yeah. Well, thank you. I thank thank you for your mission to try to bring people into contact with that. I think it's really important.
1: Well, we really appreciate it and we're, you know, we we're, we're just trying to do a little bit here to to you know do the work that God has for many of us. So so actually speaking of someone who does that work extremely well, uh, our last question for you is uh, is a late entry from Uh, author and speaker, Jessica Hooten-Wilson. Oh,
2: okay. Um,
1: So she asked this question. Some poets have called the attempt to use another's voice presumptuous. Mm -hmm. Do you find it presumptuous to write from the first person of St. Paul, Dorothy Day, or anyone else? Oh,
2: wow. Okay. Uh, That's a great question. Thanks, Jessica. I uh, Well... i I really feel that um you know kind of going back to the idea of what what draws the reader in and puts the reader into contact with that particular persona or individual or spirituality and i think sometimes when i'm writing in the first person um i and uh, often i'm writing in the third person i think the poem uh dorothy day is in the third person. Um, But I often write in the first person, it's like a persona poem. Um, And I I feel like the first person, Mm -hmm. the the reader or listener is putting themselves in the place of that person. So it's a more intimate place to experience uh, what the poem is communicating. So I do often kind of employ that because I feel like it is more intimate and, and places a reader in that space um so for example you know in preaching other birds i mean the speaker there is not saint francis but he's written in the, the first person um i i'm trying to really bring the reader into contact there with that spirituality um so i so I, my intentions are good i i i personally i guess don't feel that it's presumptuous, for me, it's coming from a place of uh, service, like kind of wanting to offer a more intimate experience uh, and honor that that individual and their spirituality.
1: Mm-hmm. That's really cool. I, I love the especially in our and I don't mean this in a in a critical way, but in our uh, rather individualistic uh, American culture, I think that sometimes the easiest way to uh, experience someone else is to try to put yourself in their shoes and, and hear something from their voice and try to imagine if you were them, you know. And so I think that the my brain is really wrestling with, with that idea and how we can uh, – other ways that we can experience the uh, unique, perhaps mystical experiences of, of those who have come before uh, because, yeah – I don't want to yeah. ramble too much, but my brain's going a lot of places.
0: <laughs> no, no it, it reminds me of the way, uh, Laura spoke about a few minutes ago about like, I want the reader to experience this and discover this for themselves, And, right. uh, I think that's a, a helpful tool to do that. Maybe it's problematic if, you know, you start to say, Hey, I wrote a poem from the point of view of Paul and it's actually the 67th book of scripture. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a uh, from Paul. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, um, obviously nothing like that is, uh, happening it's it's creative it's poetry and i think it's uh inspiring for me it gives me lots of ideas yeah, yeah
2: the, the poem that uh is specifically written in the in the voice of paul and litany of flights i draw a lot on mm-hmm. his letters so i think when i was writing that i was trying yeah. to be very careful <laughs> <laughs> uh to kind of use a lot of his imagery and concepts so it is a little tricky definitely
0: beautiful though
1: so we have to wind down our discussion for today, but uh, you know we will put a pin in that future discussion. But let's talk a little bit about, you know, a little bit more about Butterfly Nebula and and what's kind of uh, we'll leave you guys listeners with what's kind of forthcoming here. Um, so you have said that a theme that you work with in your upcoming book is the idea of divine presence in our lives, which powers both our sanctification and creativity, but also the idea that the lack of that Mm -hmm. presence, lack of divine presence can have an effect as well. Can you speak to that?
2: Yes. So I'm very interested in in the idea of divine presence and absence, as we were kind of talking about a little earlier in connection with the the Song of Songs. Uh, And it's it's in linear flights, but it really shows up um, strongly as one of the themes in Butterfly Nebula. To me, the experience of divine absence is one of the most difficult challenges in the spiritual life. Of course, what I mean by divine absence, right, isn't that God's gone, but that we don't have a felt experience, mm-hmm. right, of oppressed, which is actually still there. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I'm convinced mm-hmm. that the experience of divine absence has a point, that, that there is kind of an effectiveness or a gain in it, as painful as it can be for us um that could be many different things you know it could be uh, opportunities for unhealthy attachment to be stripped away we may gain self-knowledge learn about ourselves we may gain humility we may deepen our blind trust in god we may learn patience and endurance um uh, we may also learn not to kind of misappropriate gifts and graces uh, from God, just to kind of denying possibilities in a really incredibly mysterious process of transformation. Um, so, the challenge is to kind of see divine yeah. absence for what it is, like in the Song of Songs. The bridegroom has apparently left, but will return. And our work in the meantime is to see him and long for him in his absence. Um, And perhaps that absence uh, is part of a love relationship, a different language of love. Um, So that longing shows up in my poems, uh, as in the one I I read, You're Never and Always Ring of Fire. Uh, But in Butterfly Nebula, there are other poems that kind of stud uh, the collection, which uh, hint at the possible gain or growth that comes out of The experience of divine absence and i'm always kind of looking for new ways to express the complex experience of Mm. it in fact even even the whole trajectory of butterfly nebula is kind Mm. of like Mm. it's transformative so um that's very much a theme Mm.
1: super cool i actually wonder if you would just leave yeah would you would you just is there any poem from the book that you'd be willing to leave us with a reading of? And we can kind of just end on that.
2: Yes. In fact, I was thinking like uh, of this exactly on this topic and the possible gain in it. I'd like to read Coal Nebula, uh, which was recently published in America magazine. Uh, the Coal Nebula, the actual Coal Nebula in space is a dark nebula. Uh and it's located in the Crux constellation. A dark hmm. nebula is not characterized by stars, but by dust and clouds. So for me, that's perfect for contemplating divine absence. So here is Colsac Nebula. The music say to dig, hammer the cloud day and night that the act of gazing at the long obsidian robe of God undresses unknowing. I have descended one mile underground down a mine shaft in the back of a pickup, and there was no adjusting of the eyes, only the coal oblivion of open veins. I have tracked the dark nebula at the foot of the crux, 600 light years from earth, and I cannot penetrate your meaning. Swathed in the opaque interstellar cloud, which erases young blue shine and sweeps light away in dust of loss and blackness of grief. I cannot pierce the absence to find a single ray I am always imploring you to tell me, beloved, if you have left me forever. I scrabble the seam of your silence. You blot the belly of earth, hollow the cosmos. You ink the endless empty patches. You sharpen my unseeing eyes so I slip the stars. You hew vast space for yourself in my narrow atoms. I dimly carry the sparking quarry which slides through my sieved soul. I am always asking you to untie your sack of stars, all while here there are diamonds.
1: Yeah, that's a great poem.
0: Yeah, a, I gotta get this book. If we're going to space uh, every yeah, now and yeah. then. I gotta get, yeah. It makes sense. Litany of flights, you know, we're like we're ascending somewhere and then the next book is we're just in space now. We're even higher <laughs> yeah. in the flights, yeah. Oh, my goodness.
1: Listeners, pick up Litany of Flights. Pick up Butterfly... Ne- when is Butterfly Nebbia coming out? When can people get their hands on it?
2: It's fall. Fall of this year. Fall. So either September or October from University of Nebraska Press. There are backwaters imprint.
1: Awesome. All right, well... Laura, thank you much for being on here.
2: Thank you, guys.
1: And thank you, uh, listeners, for tuning in to the Three Hundred and Sixty podcast. Uh, if you enjoy the show, leave us a rate and review. It'll help other people discover the show and the awesome work that artists of faith are doing out there. Keep pursuing authentic faith and excellent art.